Hello, Lionhook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lionhook Thoughts Podcast. I hope you all are well. I hope you all are staying safe. Um, you know, a lot going on in terms of the virus and reopening. I just, you know, I wish you all the best of luck if you're going through that right now. And yeah, um, you know, very excited for my guest today. Her name is Chandra Ram, and she is the editor of Plate Magazine, and she's also a cookbook author. And first off, I just want to say very honored to have her on. Um, it, this conversation is really cool because we get to really talk to someone who... It's a major magazine, uh, someone who kind of knows the behind, behind the scenes of a major magazine and someone whose, you know, responsibility it is to speak to the food industry. And in this episode, she shares the kind of the direction Plate Magazine is going. And I'm very excited for you all to hear it because I think, you know, as we move forward, we're going to need these uh, outlets and media or these places to go that really highlight chefs and cooks and really just have a, you know, a place where it's a fundamental understanding that the people who work day in, day out in the industry are so integral, not only to our industry, but to the economy and to society as a whole. And so I'm very excited for the direction Plate Magazine is taking. I'm very excited for you all to hear this because she goes in depth, not only to Plate Magazine's future, but kind of the process and how they make their lists or how they create their issues. You know, it's so interesting for me to kind of see the whole media side behind food and kind of see uh, Plate Magazine be this true magazine, this true media outlet for people who love to cook, for people who love food. And it just, it's really awesome to kind of see the leadership behind it and to see that there is so much care involved in making the magazine and in highlighting people of every culture, every race, every topic um, is pretty much covered by them. And I'm really excited for them moving forward. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you everyone for listening. And I'm just excited for you to hear this. So here we go. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Uh, If you just wanted to go ahead and introduce yourself to the audience, that'd be great. Absolutely. I'm uh, Chandra Ram. I am the editor of Plate Magazine and a cookbook author. Awesome. Uh, Yeah, I'm very excited to have you on the show. Uh, You know, following Plate, following you on Twitter, um, it's an honor to get to kind of have this time to talk. And so basically, you know, want to first start out with uh, asking where you're from and what food was like for you growing up. So um, I actually am from Lexington, Kentucky. Uh, That's where I grew up. And um, but I would say that the food I ate growing up wasn't necessarily uh, typical of, uh, or certainly not what people expect from that area. Um, my parents are immigrants. My, uh, my father is Indian, um, from the Southeastern coast of India, uh, the state of Andhra Pradesh. And, um, my mother is Irish. And so she is actually from County Wexford. So, uh, we grew up eating 
a lot of, uh, of South Indian food. Um, we grew up eating a lot of, um, Kind of foods that my mom discovered. She loved that uh, that series, the Time Life books, uh, that had uh, it was like this series of cookbooks, and she was forever kind of exploring different cuisines and that. Um, and then we got some Irish things in there, some uh, good brown bread and scones and things like that. So um, yeah, it was really I think formative to grow up with a mother who both enjoyed cooking and was adventurous about it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, um, I, you know, in talking to chefs, everyone seems to have that pivotal person in their life who kind of either, you know, you know, imparted on them the importance of food or just show them that they could do it as a career. Was she someone who kind of led you onto your career path or I guess, how did you get interested in doing uh, food as like a, you know, like a choice of career? Well, I, you know, growing up with her and, uh, and us being as close as we are, I think she wasn't at all surprised that I wanted to get into food, but I was, I was always very torn, uh, because I had a, um, uh, because I had a kind of equal love of magazines. Uh, and so I was very much like trying to figure out how to uh, um, how to do both, and I didn't necessarily see a way to do both initially. So what happened with Plate really um, was kind of a dream because I didn't necessarily know that there were that many food publications that were maybe based not in New York, and that was a way for me to combine writing and my love of magazines and cooking and food as well. But it was, I will say that I got to where I am professionally in sort of a long roundabout way that uh, isn't, you know, it seems very well thought out, but it wasn't. So it's a lot of sort (laughs) of working hard and dumb luck. Yeah, awesome. I mean, um, you know, I think that's, you know, more so now than ever, a lot of people are uh, seeing you know, people like you who love food and also love food media, and you're able to intertwine the two. And I think a lot of people look for that now in terms of careers, something they want to really focus on. Um, it, you know, the media side of things, when did you, like, at what point did you start to realize that was going to be just as important to you as, say, your cooking skills? You know, I, I, I was pretty torn about things. I, um, I went to college and studied journalism and I was just so into cooking and I would, uh, I would actually, um, just, you know, just throw these like crazy dinner parties in college and pull these like complete menus out of Bon Appetit and Martha Stewart and just do these like hugely elaborate dinners And I really felt like, okay, I want to get into food and maybe it will be something with food and writing, but I didn't see, I wasn't as exposed to as much food writing as I, you know, in retrospect, I think I should have been. So I didn't know what the opportunities were. I knew I wanted to, I loved working in restaurants, uh, front of the house and back of the house. And 
I knew that I wanted to pursue that area. So I just decided to, uh, that culinary school would be the next step with, for me. So I started culinary school, I'm going to say two years, I think, after I finished college. Okay. And so your uh, first time at college was in Chicago at Loyola? Yes. If yeah. I'm correct? So that was... And then you went to the Culinary Institute of America. And then I went to CIA. And at the time, they're really... Like a CIA, I think since then, has changed quite a bit. But at the time... They didn't really talk much about career paths other than the traditional being a chef. And it was just sort of, are you going to try to, you know, work your way up to being a chef at an independent restaurant or in a corporation or, you know, at a hotel or a country club or something like that. But we didn't necessarily talk about other opportunities there. And uh, so I actually worked as a consulting chef uh, with a uh, food service consulting firm, marketing agency, uh, for about a year after school, and then um, started working my way, started doing a little freelance writing, working on marketing and public relations for restaurants and uh, food businesses. And then uh, after several years of that, uh, went into writing full time. Okay. And what, like when you went into writing full-time, uh, was there any part of you, because this is a sentiment that I kind of get from people not even like just going into writing, but going into a separate path other than working in a restaurant directly. Did you feel at all, I don't, not the word sellout, but like I, I, I talked to a lot of cooks who want to do something else and they feel like they're not staying true to who they are because they're worried others are going to judge them because they're not in a restaurant. I kind of mm. was wondering if you had those same feelings or if you were, you know, so sure that you kind of just went for it and, you know, you were going to see what happens. Uh, you know, I, I didn't necessarily think that working as a restaurant cook was for me. I, I did it and I just, I didn't feel like I was great at it. I don't think I was. I think that, uh, I was, um, I think I was Okay. Um, but it wasn't necessarily like, oh, okay, this is it. This is the right thing for me. I knew I wanted to do something different with it. Um, I didn't necessarily feel embarrassed by it, but I did, I have had some twinges, um, in Gabrielle Hamilton's, uh, memoir, Blood, Bones and Butter. She talks at one point about all of the, the women who go to culinary school or work as cooks and then kind of pull into a different career path and get out of restaurants. And that was probably when I read that for the first time, that was the first time I felt like, ah, uh, did I do something? Like, was I kind of not tough enough staying in the kitchen or that? But in retrospect, it's just that, um, you know, you've, you've got to try different things, which I think is one of the best things about the food world is that there, there are so many different avenues you can pursue. There are so many different types of jobs. And as well, you know, you, so you've got to try things and you've got to really go with what your gut's telling you and what you feel like will work for you. As far as being worried about yeah, people judging, I mean, I totally yeah, agree. I mean, like as far as people being worried about people judging you, it's just like, oh lord, they're going to judge you no matter what. So <laughs> you have to just be true to yourself. 
Yeah. Um, yeah. The reason I, I ask is that I do uh, talk to a lot of cooks uh, on a regular basis. Uh, not like the same people, but people reach out to me over time and they ask like, you know, what are your thoughts if I did this? Or what are your thoughts if I like kind of did something different in the industry or even just like a different sector entirely of the food you know, world. And for me, like I'm in the same boat where it's like, I feel like you should be trying as much as you want because maybe there's something out there that you really love that you, you know, you might never do because you're worried that or you always thought you were supposed to be in a restaurant. So I guess asking that was hopefully to, you know, a message to people that, you know, doing other things is a good thing in the food industry. Oh, absolutely. And I, th- I think it's, it's, it's sort of like the flip side of the coin that we all know from the get go, which is that, uh, you know, working, having the skills, working as a cook, working even in front of the house in the restaurant means you can basically go anywhere in the world and get a job. And you can, you know, you have this skill that can take you anywhere. And similarly, there's so many other opportunities. There's so many different ways to, to look at it. I know people who have gone to culinary school who work in PR work in marketing, work in sales, they do consulting, they're food stylists, they do video production, um, they host podcasts, I mean, they, uh, they write. So there's, there's so many different things you can do. Um, you know, when I was in school, there wasn't necessarily as strong a focus on, um, on the wine side of things. And so I know quite a few people who went to culinary school and then got into the wine, beer, liquor industries. So, you know, the knowledge is there and you can just sort of use it in whatever way you want. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very good point. Um, And so, you know, going back to your story uh, with starting plate or I guess what, you know, when you decided to go right full time, what uh, kind of happened? after that in terms of your career and like the jobs you took? Well, I was doing a mix of freelancing for different publications and I actually started with plate. Uh, I uh, developed a recipe for it for the very first issue of the magazine. So this was, um, this was fall 2002 that that came out. And um, then after like another issue, they said, Oh, Hey, would you be able to write, you know, are you interested in writing for us? And, uh, cause I had mentioned that I did some, uh, freelance writing and they said, and I said, absolutely, I would love to. And then I was regularly writing for the magazine and other publications. And then about, you know, 15 years ago, almost to the month, uh, Bill McDowell, the, uh, editorial director, uh, for the company that owns plate, uh, called and said, Hey, do you want to go to lunch? And, we had met a few times at different events that the magazine did. And I said, absolutely, you know, sounds good. And he said, you know, well, Nancy Ross Ryan, who was the, uh, the founding uh, culinary editor is leaving. And uh, we think you should be the editor. And so we talked about a few things and said, he said, well, why don't you think about it? And we had lunch again, like a week or two later and said, okay, I'm going to do this. So it's, um, so that wound up working out really incredibly well for me. And it's kind of wild to think about having worked at the magazine for 15 years. Um, 
But I also am that person who can be, you know, if someone mentions a recipe, I can say like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that Gen Feb issue of 2008. So. <laughs> That's good. Um, and so if you could just explain uh, what exactly an editor does, because I, I feel like everyone has a good idea. But, you know, if you wanted to just share, I guess, your job function, uh, not trying to sound like someone who's asking for your resume, but uh, I think it'd be cool. to. No, kind of no, that's OK. Um, I. Um, absolutely. And, and I think the role of editor in chief, like it, it varies per publication. What I do, I work with Liz Grossman, our managing editor on, um, all of the content, whether it's, uh, in the printed magazine, which is six times a year, um, or online, uh, because we do four newsletters a week. And so we come up with ideas for the content, um, assign it to writers or write it ourselves. We still do. We both do quite a bit of writing. Um, a lot of it is sometimes just kind of organizing it and setting the timing and the, um, you know, how we want to put things together. And then as well, I work with our publisher, Jerry White, on what he's doing in terms of the sales side. I'm not involved with sales in terms of doing any sales myself, but uh I think it's uh, it's often helpful for him to have the editor um, meet with him and his team to talk about what we're doing on the editorial side so they have a better idea and can sell against it. And then as well, um, you know, kind of help him if he's got uh, presentations or if they're working on some marketing initiatives or if we're thinking about events uh, to get my two cents in there and you know, and going back to, you know, coming from the experience of working in restaurants, uh, be able to sort of chime in and say like, oh yeah, well, here's something, you know, if we're looking to do an event with chefs, it would be really good to do it on like a Monday, uh, because that's when more people are off that those sorts of, and, and here's how they're going to react to this. And this is what it's like. And, um, something we should keep in mind if we're planning, say, an event or um, some sort of marketing initiative. So I do all those things. I um, I like to work with our writers as closely as possible. I do a lot of going going around the country. I speak at conferences quite a bit. Um, I do a lot of eating in restaurants uh, in the before days, at least. Uh, to scout for, you know, scout for new places to cover, new dishes to write about, um, uh, people to feature in our annual Chefs to Watch issue. And then some days I just sit and answer emails for hours, <laughs> like everyone. <laughs> yeah, um, I can imagine. Uh, a couple questions, I guess, pertaining to your role. So something like the Chefs to Watch, um, obviously, you know, in the industry – there's so many different people that are so talented and, you know, with different backgrounds and representing different uh, aspects of food. Uh, what do you, like, what is the process like, you know, for an, or I guess an issue like chefs to watch, like how do you begin to kind of search for that talent that's out there? You know, we're probably fairly close to saying like, okay, we need to start looking at what it's going to be for next year. It's, it really takes like just about a full year to put the list together um, because with any, with any, uh, publication, and I, I can't think of a single national publication that doesn't work like this. We're, we're really always thinking for six months out, uh, 
four to six months ahead of publication for anything that we're doing. So with that, I, you know, I talk to a lot of cooks and chefs to see what they're interested in, what restaurants really exciting. I read 900 million different magazine and newspaper and newsletter articles. Um, you know, I, it's the type of thing of, um, you know, when I was in, in November, for example, I went to Washington DC, um, with my publisher, uh, for an event, one of our advertisers was doing. And then I always sort of like tag on an extra day or two to check out restaurants there. I met up with, uh, Tom Sietzma, who is the dining critic for the Washington Post. Uh, and uh, he and I are friendly and we sort of try and meet up if we're in each other's town. So and then he's sort of like, oh, well, you know what? If you're looking at kind of up and coming chefs and restaurants, you should really check this place out. And you should go here and you should do this. And so it's a lot of that. You know, it's, it's great to know uh, food people around the country. So I can say, hey, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco. I'm looking at a list of 18 different restaurants. What are the places I need to go? And who are the people who are really impressing you? And so that's what we hope to to produce with the Chefs to Watch issue is something that is a, it's a way to give a national spotlight to a lot of the, the people who are getting local attention, but um, are still sort of still on the rise, I should say. Okay. No, I mean, it's definitely interesting because, you know, it, like I said, it's probably so difficult to, um, I mean, not difficult in terms of finding talent because it's everywhere, but difficult to kind of just, you know, put a, a list together, like you said, the length it takes and whatnot. So um, I was definitely interested in learning about that. And, uh, you know, going some more so towards the publication in terms of recipes or articles you put out or put into the publication, what is the process like for, um, I guess, just coming up, like, just coming up with those ideas or the concepts or the topics that you want to put into the magazine for that issue? Well, actually we're changing everything. <laughs> so you're asking me at a very okay. interesting time um, because I would have had a different answer for you a month ago. Um, what we had been doing, what we've been doing. So, uh, you know, for the last 18 years is producing six issues. Well, we started out at four, we went to six, so we were at seven for a bit, we're at six again, feels right. Um, six issues a year, each focused around a single theme. And so that's a really interesting exercise because, again, because we would set the themes of each issue um, for, you know, for an entire year in the summer of the year before, um, we would, you know, my team and I would spend a lot of time just saying like, hey, what do we think about seafood? Okay, we want to do something with seafood, but we need to narrow it a bit. We need to give it a little bit more of a focus on this. So what, you know, we kind of, we start looking around, we look at menus, we scroll through Instagram, we talk to people, we kind of say, hey, I'm seeing a lot of this. What are you seeing? And so that's how we that's how we start to nail things down a bit and say, Oh, okay. And then it's the matter of, is this, is this topic, it has to be not too broad. You can't say Asian food or even Southeast Asian food. We have done that, but that was many years ago. And, and, you know, 
if we were to continue doing things like that, we would never say like, oh, we're just going to do Southeast Asian food. But it, so it, it has to be specific, but it also can't be so specific that it really should be an article or two and not an entire issue of the magazine. And then it's got to be something that we feel like there's an opportunity to learn. So um, I, know I always th think of the fact like a few years ago, we were going to do an entire issue on pies. And you can certainly fill an entire issue of a magazine about pies. And I was just like, what are we learning from this? What are we, what are people going to take from it other than the fact of here's a lot of different pies. Some are sweet, some are savory, some are fried, some are baked, some are ham pies, some are large pies, some are slab pies. I mean, yeah. like, you know, there is, there is that consideration. So, but we are changing. So we're still going yeah. Okay. So this is pretty big and I don't know that a whole lot of people outside our immediate universe know it. So you, um, well, thanks you for sharing. <laughs> have the scoop, but, um, you know, we've been always extremely food focused and focused on food and chefs and, you know, the last, what is it? Is it three months? Is it four months since everything hit the fan? Um, Ever since the pandemic hit the U.S., I think that, you know, the restaurant industry has been turned on its end. And it's terrifying to think how things are changing. I mean, right now we're talking late June and in some places, restaurants are just starting to open up again. Yes. And in other places, they are 100% back to normal. And, um, whatever normal is, if people are walking around wearing masks and there's, you know, plexiglass between booths and things like that. Mm -hmm. But, um, so we're seeing it's, it's scary because we're also seeing a, a spike in, uh, in, in diagnoses for coronavirus again. So it's, um, you know, the entire industry has changed and we recognized that, uh, we couldn't sit there and kind of say, okay, well, I know your restaurant's closed and you just furloughed your entire staff and you're trying to negotiate with your landlord on how to keep going and you're applying for PPP loans and, you know, looking into the CARES Act and all of that. But like, here's an amazing hummus like that. That feels a little bit disingenuous, <laughs> if nothing else. Yeah. So, you know, since the pandemic hit, um, you know, I frankly, is, I'm usually traveling almost every week in the spring to different conferences or events and things like that. Um, and uh, all of that. And so I usually have quite a bit of content already assigned and ready to go. And so I still am hanging. I had to stop all of it. I'm still hanging on to all of it. It's just sitting in like a folder of like what was going to happen. And we started writing about what it was like to shut down your restaurant and how to negotiate through the PPP loan process and what to, you know, what your, uh, what your employees who aren't U.S. citizens are facing right now. And, um, you know, personal essays from chefs about what it's like to go through this time. And I tried to write, you know, blog pieces and talk about what, what I was seeing. And it's, it's really, it's really come to a point where I, I think for the immediate future, the future of restaurants is not necessarily focused on the food so much as it is trying to create a, 
a still a different but still beautiful experience for the guest and trying to keep your head above water. So the um, the issue coming out in a couple of weeks, our July, August issue is all about the um, the future of restaurants. And so food wise, that means a lot of takeout and delivery. And we talked to people about the like incredibly elaborate meal kits they were doing and things that, you know, what restaurants from fine dining places like Alinea were doing all the way to like, how is a, you know, a coffee shop in San Francisco that's trying to pull away from third party delivery services, like how they're doing it. And so we did a lot of takeout food. We did a lot of personal essays in there, talked with chefs about the future of restaurants put out some of the kind of practical changes that are here and going to be even, you know, ahead uh, for the foreseeable future until we have a vaccine and we have a, a majority of the population vaccinated. And that's what we're, we're going to keep looking at that in other issues moving forward. But we're also, I think if we were about food and then, food primarily and chefs as a secondary thing, we're kind of switching those positions and the chefs will be the most important part, the most important part of our coverage. And we'll talk about food. We'll talk about drinks. We'll talk about um, not necessarily the business side of things, like what's the best, you know, combi oven for your dollar. Like it's not what we're going to do, but it's, it's more like, you know, what's going on, how are you and your team handling the, you know, the emotional and mental stress of trying to stay employed at a time like this? How are you, you know, there is a, a massive civil rights movement crossing the world. And so how does that play out in your restaurant? Um, how do you do things like, how do you still communicate to your guests if you're, you know, non-verbally, if you're wearing a mask, all of these different things that I think are more timely and of, you know, have a certain amount of urgency for our audience. So it's pretty cool. And it's also kind of cool that we're, we're feeling our way a little bit with each issue. So we're going to do some things that um, are outside, I think are a little bit outside of the box for what people expect from plate. We're going to do some pieces on specifically how do um, how do you photograph your food? If Instagram is now the way for you to sell your food, and not that you know, not that it wasn't a great way to promote it before, but it's become so much more important when you can direct, you can show a dish and then direct people to your link in bio, and uh, then further. Uh, you know, have them order it and, you know, stop by the restaurant and pick it up later that day. How do you, and, you know, certainly if we're all cutting costs, it's harder to hire outside photographers and spend a lot of time doing that. So, you know, for chefs, how do you, how do you photograph your food and make it look good? How do you make a brown stew look enticing and not like just a large bowl of brown <laughs> with so we're doing some we're doing some cool and interesting stuff. I'm pretty excited about it. Um, yeah, I mean, thank you first and foremost for sharing that on the show. Um, I mean, I think it's really great. Some thoughts on it. Um, but first, just wanted to share with 
the audience listening, uh, you know, you were saying about kind of the uh, topics each issue would touch on. And so in the past, to kind of give a perspective that, you know, you're saying not too broad, but not too narrow, uh, there's issues such as the dietary request issue, the sustainable seafood issue, uh, modern Indian issue, were the last uh, kind of three issues that were put out. So just to give the people, you know, people mm-hmm. uh, a picture of kind of, I guess, how zoomed in you get on certain topics. Uh, but I, I honestly like think that the direction is great, you know, as someone who's been podcasting and, you know, creating content for cooks for a, for a year and a half. It's been a lot of, you know, cooks just wanting to be heard. And I really am excited to, you know, see Plate Magazine do this because, you know, for me, the reason I started this page and started doing what I do is I know that the people in this industry that work every day are very complex and they care a lot about their work and they care a lot about others. And they all have so many great stories and they all have so many great viewpoints on the world that kind of, I guess, just give you a balanced perspective when you kind of talk to a lot of them. And so it's very exciting for me, um, you know, to see cooks kind of get highlighted in a major publication like Play. I know, you know, they've been highlighted in the in the past, but there still are a lot of cooks that don't feel like they're really heard or that they're really noticed. And I think this is a great step towards that. Oh, good. Thank you. That I mean, it's like I I feel like sometimes when you're catching me, in you know, in particular at a time when we're just kind of very tightly have our heads down at work and we're just trying to plow through this massive, massive list and of of everything we have to get done. So it 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 really makes me feel good that hey, this is you know, this resonates with people and you know with cooks in particular because it's. Um, it's so important. And I had just have a tremendous amount of respect for what, uh, what cooks do and the fact of being able to, to pull out of somewhere creativity in the midst of working through your own prep list and, you know, dealing with the monotony of, all of that, as well as like all those really fun surprises that happen in restaurants, like when someone doesn't show up or the drain starts overflowing or a customer does something that customers do. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I know what you mean. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, like I said, I think it's good. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see kind of the content you put out. I did want to ask you, you know, as we kind of move down the road and obviously your changing plate. Um, what's it been like to continue to put out a magazine, uh, you know, in a world that is going to such smaller size content? I mean, obviously there's still a lot of long form. You, you only need to look at podcasts to know that like people do like long form content or books or magazines. But when it seems like there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, shorter content, that's like five minutes or 10 minutes long. Um, what's it been like to, you know, be a magazine kind of in that with, your article writing and kind of the content you put out, maybe that's not in the magazine, but just like off your Twitter feed or like you said, a blog post, what has it been like to manage that? It's, um, you know, it's a process. Writing is hard, man. It is hard. I wrote something the other day and then I realized I kind of like finished it up late at night and I went to bed and thinking, Oh God, this is kind of crap. This is just the, and then I woke up the next morning and I looked at it and I was like, oh, here's the problem. I need to like lop off the top, the first 300 words and just get right to it. And so writing is a process and it's something I write a lot. I write a ton. 
And so I have, I don't spend a lot of time circling around and sort of like, oh, you know, putting it off necessarily because I am writing on deadline so much. But it, you know, it is a process. And I think it's something that is rewarding because in the same way of, um, of cooking, you can, you can keep doing something over and over again and, and find yourself continually getting better at it and putting your own artistic touches on something that is a craft. And as well, it's, to a certain extent, it's somewhat disposable, right? I mean, you either you put the plate up in the window and you're done with it, ideally. Um, you hit publish on a web article or send the magazine to the printer and, you know, that's it. Unless there is, you know, God forbid, an error or something like that. You're, you have to live with how it is in that state in the world. And then you get to start all over again. So it's, um, I remember when I took the job at plate, a friend of mine said, well, this is going to be really good for your perfectionist tendencies because you're not going to be able to keep picking with any, at it. like you're going, you're going to have to, uh, you're going to have to, um, let it go and accept it. Um, but it's, it's also equally been fascinating to see how restaurants have changed in, uh, excuse me, it's been fascinating to see how magazines have changed in the last 15 years. Because when I started, Plate published six times a year, and I really felt like we needed to publish 12 times a year to be as relevant as possible. Except the thing is, each issue of Plate, particularly because they had these single themes like Israeli food and, um, you know, an entire issue on the impact of California on American cuisine. And these things, it's like, they're a little bit special and you want to, you need to, you know, have some time to take it in. And so that wouldn't necessarily happen with a monthly publication. And we weren't able to pull it off unless we just doubled it, our size of our staff, which doesn't work in journalism any better than it does in restaurants. And um, what's happened since then is magazines have become more rare. And what's interesting now is people say like, oh, wow. And it's sort of like they know our website and we happen to publish this really beautiful print magazine that has like stunning photography and nice, thick, glossy paper and all of the, you know, all of the things. And so it's been kind of cool to see that having a beautiful and very specially crafted print product has become a special thing. And, you know, God willing, as long as back when everyone traveled, I used to say, as long as the first 20 minutes of every flight and the last 20 minutes were, uh, you know, require that you turn off your electronic devices, then I was like, okay, well, magazines will survive. But I still love them. You know, there's, there's something where I, I read a lot of long form content online. I read on my phone. I read, I mean, I read books on my phone. I read uh, all kinds of lengthy things, but there is really something that feels better about reading a printed page. And the physical act of curling up with a magazine and looking through it and getting away from your screen so that if suddenly you know, start getting news alerts or you know social media notifications or texts or whatever, 
like that's not all coming up, popping up and interrupting your reading. You can actually just sit and read. It's kind of a nice thing. It's like a luxury now. Yeah, no, I mean, I feel the same way about books. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm still to this day don't read uh, books. I'm like a e-reader. I prefer a physical copy just because I, you know, that's I, that's how I like to read the books. I like to actually like hold it and, you know, uh, be there with it. But um, going to... Yeah, you know, and be able to like flip back and forth and, <laughs> yes. um, you know, just kind of savor it a bit. Yeah, and I love like cover art and everything. Like the whole, you know, the whole... A book is really cool to have. Um, but going into um, kind of, I guess, your audience, you know, as you said, plates moving forward in a different direction, kind of putting chefs first. Uh, and as you said, also, there's a giant movement for civil rights and kind of sharing the stories of not a certain, uh, certain group of people, but, you know, everyone kind of in the industry playing their part. And I think you have all done that with the uh, issues you put out. What's it been like to, you know, focus on diversity and kind of focus on the different, maybe realizing that a certain audience might not like, or might not find interest in a certain thing, but yet you're still going to do it anyway. Like for the chef's issue, I imagine people who are looking for, you know, recipes, like obviously might still get them, but might not look at plate like they would look at like the dietary restrictions issue. And you all change every issue, like in a different direction. So what's it been like to kind of retain an audience through such a broad range of topics? No, I think that it's, it's just the fact of if we're, if we're primarily focused on chefs and cooks and people who work in restaurants, then we want to look at, take like a 360 view of their world. And think about like, okay, what does that look like? That looks like, um, that looks like the food, but it also looks like the, you know, the culture of their kitchen. It looks like how they are, are interacting with other people. It looks like how they, you know, what they say when they, when they talk about other cuisines. I mean, you ask about diversity and I, never want to do this sort of diversity issue. I always hate it when um, a, a few years ago, there used to be more of these, there would be um, awards and things like that. And they say, Oh, like best female chef or best female editor. And I just thought, well, shit, I think I'm a better editor than a lot of guys I know. So why can't <laughs> I just be best? Why is it best editor and best female editor? Why can't yep. it be that? And I, and I know a lot of women chefs who, who feel the same way. And then there's just this sense of exhaustion of like, I don't want this to be about my gender and I don't want it to be about my, uh, you know, about my skin color or my heritage. Um, I've dealt with those questions my entire life. Like, believe you me, you do not grow up mixed race in Kentucky without or anywhere. I mean, let's not say that this is something that just happens in the South by any stretch of the imagination, but you, you don't grow up mixed race without having a lot of people come up to you and say, where are you from? And that's such a, um, such a strong memory for me because it, it happened a lot when I was growing up and I was just so used to just, you know, trotting out. Oh yeah. You know, my, my father's from a town called Vizag. It's in Andhra Pradesh in the southeastern coast of India. And my mother's from a town called New Ross. And it's on the southeastern coast 
of Ireland in County Wexford and oh we live here and you know we love it and all of these things because it's in you know in retrospect it's shocking to me that people felt like oh here's a 6-year-old child and I'm going to go up to that child and say something that challenges whether or not she belongs here. And it's so to hold that, it's crazy, but oh my gosh, happens all the time, happens all the time. And like I said, and it happens, it, it certainly didn't stop happening when I moved to New York or when I moved to Chicago, I will tell you that much. So, um, so when I think about that, it's, it's like, I never want it to be like, oh, there's the, you know, there's this issue. Um, we, since we do issues on, on, on different things, we, you know, we have done an issue on regional African cuisine. So that certainly, uh, I felt like was ahead of its time, um, and, and more proactive as opposed to being responsive. It was the fact of like, Hey, these cuisines are here and we're ignoring them. And that's, you know, that's kind of crap. We need to highlight them in the same way we highlight Italian food or Spanish food or Californian or anything. Um, and people have different reactions to it. I have gotten, I think it's hilarious. Um, I have on a few occasions gotten letters saying um, you need to stop focusing on quote unquote ethnic women. And I just want to say like, my dude, who do you think you're emailing here? <laughs> like, but, um, you know, but what I want to do is make sure that the magazine never feels like it's directed solely towards white men and that there is representation. And then I think yeah, so I think part of the issue is that women, uh, people of color, black cooks, chefs, bartenders haven't had as many opportunities to get ahead because of the perception of leaders being white men, frankly. And so we want to, you know, we want to make sure that we're featuring those people and showing them not just as a sort of desire to show diversity or whatever, but frankly, because we want to, you know, we want people who are coming up, um, young cooks to see them and see that there is a path ahead and to see that there are people who have gotten into more senior level management positions who have gotten into, um, gotten into, um, ownership and you know that they are there, and there there is a, a way ahead. So that's something that I think is is very important for what we do. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree, and I hope you know it's like you like you were saying in terms of the of diversity and kind of not like the awards for like female best chef. Like I kind of take that approach with line cook thoughts in terms of it's more so just talented cooks getting shared on the page people I find interesting with different, you know, backgrounds or different roles in the industry getting interviewed. And I think that, you know, what you're doing with the issues and kind of how you, how you've, you know, picked, like you said, issues in the past that kind of reflect different areas, but you know, it doesn't, it feels like very genuine. I think that's going to be very important uh, moving forward as well as, you know, how it's kept you all uh, successful in the past. Yeah. I mean, there's, you know, there's, often a reason to write about, you know, foods that are familiar. Uh, you see people are doing different twists on them and that, but, you know, 
we're all creative people and we want to, you know, there's with good reason, we want to be able to push the envelope a bit or explore some flavors or cooking techniques or cuisines that are, that might be less familiar. And I think that we as a society have to question why these things are less familiar. Why, um, you know, why would, why is white culture necessarily the lens through which everything has to be judged? And if it was that way in the past to make efforts to affect some change there. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, when I was in college, I'm also a CIA graduate, um, position just started by students uh, that has uh, been restarted uh, asking for a, a, you know, cuisines of Africa course, like a full like course on it. And like, I think, you know, stuff like that, like teaching and, you know, getting people excited and interested about other things out there. And like you said, not looking at it through the white lens of, you know, one aspect of the industry, you know, it gets really interesting when you're able to kind of branch out. And, you know, I don't claim to know everything, but I definitely am interested in more than just the French uh, background that I was taught at school. Right. (laughs) I mean, when, what years were you at CIA? I was there from 2015 to 2018. Okay. So I was there a lot earlier and all, you know, we learned French cuisine and then we had, um, this is at the time we did classes in seven or 14 day blocks and you just did, you know, one mm. class at a time. And I remember we did seven days on international kitchen. And so something like Indian food was like one team got to prepare a couple of Indian dishes one day at lunch. And like, that was India. And, uh, you know, same for Caribbean and, uh, you know, even Mediterranean was kind of like a little bit out there. So it's, um, I think it's important. I think that's awesome that you guys kind of kind of advocated to explain, you know, expand the the focus a bit. And yeah, you know, I I I thought my experience at CIA was incredible, but gosh, I'd like to go back. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I you know, I love my time there, and it definitely like from when I went, there was definitely more built out international courses, but there was still a large, uh, I guess, sector of cuisine that wasn't, wasn't really being touched upon. So I think that more so that was why that was started. But um, no, I, I think it, you know, I think they're hopefully doing, you know, great things there and that that's going to be kind of something they focus on. But um, I wanted to get into, uh, in regards to your work, next, the cookbooks, uh, the, the three cookbooks you have out, mm-hmm. um, kind of what, what you're, I guess, because obviously you're working at the magazine. What was it like to also put out cookbooks? Uh, I know the one got a James Beard nomination. Like, what is it like to, I guess, to start out on a cookbook and kind of start out on a theme that you're interested in? Um, you know, I think that it's, uh, I mean, it's fantastic. I love books. I love cookbooks. I think it's important to have a really fantastic relationship if with a, uh, with a co-author, if you are doing something like that, um, you're talking about the, um, Korean barbecue, which was nominated for a beer award. Um, I wrote with, um, chef Bill Kim, who has become a, a very dear friend of mine. Um, and his, his wife has as well. And, uh, you have to be really close with the person you're co-authoring the book. 
so that you can hear that person's voice in your head uh, while you're writing. And it was an incredibly rewarding experience. Uh, we did this one with uh, 10 Speed Press. Um, our, you know, the team there was just fantastic to work with. Our editor, Kelly, she was amazing. Um, and it was, it was really, it was, it was really great because I got to learn so much about Korean ingredients and I got to learn so many different ways of working with a grill. And I also got to experience and, and learn a different style of writing. Um, you know, it's, it's funny with, with cookbooks, uh, with the three I've worked on and, and other authors have said it's the same thing for them. It feels like you're, um, you know, you spend so much time working on the introduction and where, where these ideas are coming from and providing cultural context for everything and explaining so much of the background information. And then when I'm out in the world, I don't know how many people actually read introductions to cookbooks. So uh, I think that it's, um, you know, it's, it's a challenge to make sure that you are getting all of that information that you've crafted so beautifully to have uh, in the book, to have it as well, you know, sprinkled throughout so that there is context and perspective and you are, um, you know, you're, you're kind of showing the work throughout, even if doing so is, uh, in, you know, via like a hundred word head note on a recipe. And it's interesting to write, write books for, um, home cooks as well. You know, with plate, so much of our, you know, our recipes are for people like you who know how to cook, who, if I say make a roux, don't need it expl explained to them. And home cooks, have a lot of questions. So I am always fascinated uh, when I get a chance to watch what I call normal people cook things because um, they approach it so differently than you or I might. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's cool. And, you know, I always look up to, you know, chefs or people in the industry who write cookbooks because I know it's uh, it's a challenging process you know never actually haven't written one but i would don't it, thinking about writing one makes me nervous and kind of like uh i don't know if i could even do that but um you know it's it's cool to see that you were able to do it and do it successfully oh thank you i mean and it is something that um one of the good things i think about writing a cookbook is that um it's inherently divided up into small chunks because you're looking at okay we're going to produce 130 recipes or we're going, you know, so you can look at it sort of recipe by recipe, which is, um, there's a, there's a, a famous book about writing called bird by bird. And it was written by Annie Lamott. And it's one of those books about, about writing that I return to regularly because it's, uh, it just makes me feel inspired and feel like, okay, this is doable. And, one of the things in there is like, you can't, you don't think about writing an entire book. You think about writing one recipe and a headnote for that recipe. And then you just do that again, over and over again, 75 times or a hundred times or 300 times, depending on how many recipes. And you, you have to have an outline and you have to have it all organized well, but it's, you can do it sort of one piece at a time. And so, and frankly, that was the way I was able to do it because when I was working on 
Korean barbecue and then working on um, the Indian cookbook I wrote as well. I mean, I, I got up at five o'clock in the morning and made coffee and started writing. And then I, yeah. And then, and, and often tested a recipe in the morning. And then at some point I would um, drink more coffee and take a shower and go to work and write some more. And then I would, you know, maybe take a look at things like while eating lunch and then go home and hang out with my husband a little bit or go to the gym. And then we would eat what I had, the recipe I had tested first thing in the morning and um, maybe watch, watch a show. And then I go back and write some more. So I actually had to do physical therapy on my wrists um, after that year of writing two books plus a magazine Um, because, and it wasn't carpal tunnel. It was, Basically, my shoulders being like hunched over all the time was leading to pain in my wrists. So I, you know, it's hard, but it's, I felt like I was approaching it. So that same kind of mentality of, you know, something happens and something happens in a kitchen and say, all of a sudden you're looking at another three hours of work. You just do it. You know, it's just sort of like, all right, screw it. Like this is this is what you have to do. So you do it. And I was it was work I really wanted to do, and I enjoyed it quite a bit. And I figured out how to get myself into it. So and what that was 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 recognizing that I work really well first thing in the morning. So okay, create some time first thing in the morning to do that work, and um, you know. And also to kind of say, okay, this is when I need to have something that's very practical. Like I have a recipe written out. I want to start cooking it. And this is when I want to have time to um, sit in front of the computer and write. So it's good. My husband's a huge football fan. So I knew I had every Sunday from like 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. to uh, have the house to myself. (laughs) He went over to a friend's place or met up with people to watch football. And so I was just like, okay, that'll just be writing day. <laughs> That's awesome. Because you're in Chicago, is he a Bears fan? or? I mean, he's sort of a Bears fan, but recognizes that most years it's, you know, that's not a very happy thing to be. So, uh, um, but he, he's a big football fan. So, you know, and I and I think it's also important when you're working just kind of straight out like that to realize how to take breaks that feed you a bit, you know, whether it's, you know, it might be there are sometimes times, you know, that you have to just walk away from your computer and walk away for a few hours or walk away for a night or a day and do something that will help you come back refreshed, whether it's getting enough sleep or, um, for me, like working out helps a lot. Um, I, we used to, uh, take trips, uh, scuba diving trips. And so I, I like, especially love just sort of sitting on the bottom of the ocean and looking around and not doing anything because all you can do is, is be, and the only yeah. thing you really have to focus on is your breathing. So where, where do you go scuba diving? Um, Mexico, the last couple of times, 
uh, just because it's, you know, it's beautiful and it's warm and there's some gorgeous diving there. I've been to a few places in the Caribbean as well. Belize was really gorgeous. Um, so yeah, that's something that is fantastic for me. And it, it does occur to me regularly that just sitting and looking around and not jumping all over the place in terms of what I'm reading or need to listen to or look at and um, just breathing. That's sort of like a meditation and maybe I could start meditating and capture that feeling and uh, what it, you know, all the good things it does for my brain more regularly, but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard to yeah. do that. It's easy to do it when you're sitting on the bottom of the ocean, because <laughs> if you don't just focus on your breathing, like you can't dive. So no, that's interesting. Um, kind of in regards to that, I guess, finding an activity. Um, recently, within the last two weeks, I started running every morning. Um, I, When I left culinary school, I was, uh, I was really overweight, and I've lost a bunch of weight since. And I really wanted to instill uh, a daily – I always wanted to instill, like, a daily run in the morning. And so doing mm-hmm. that the past two weeks has been – I don't know. Like, my days just feel more – I feel more productive, like, from the start, like, getting up early and like doing something that totally like hurts and it's tiring and it's like why am I even out here and um you know why am I even running because I don't even know if I really like running but at the end when I'm like finished with my mile or mile and a half and then I go in the back and in my backyard and do bodyweight exercises but having that start to the morning now that's so much different than anything else I've started my day with and like it's almost like a first accomplishment that kind of gets my day going so I definitely kind of understand having something outside of the kitchen that gets you motivated. Yeah. And with something like that, I mean, running is really hard for me. I used to run a lot and I would run races, do half marathons and things like that. And then I stopped running and I haven't run in years. And I started up again um, once the shelter in place orders kicked in because I was like, okay, well, I can't go to a gym. I can't go to a yoga class. I, I think it's me and my shoes and the neighborhood streets. And Sometimes it's good that like you, you can't obsess about work. You can't obsess about things because you're just sort of trying to breathe and um, you're like, okay, I just need to do, you know, another half a mile, another quarter mile. I need to, you know, like just get through that. So yeah. it's that, that focus on just making it through that I think does help clear your brain to some extent. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, my last question um, second to last question, uh, kind of edit all the interviews the same way, but any advice for anyone right now um, going into food media? I know I have a lot of people who follow the page who obviously are interested in food media. I have a lot of people who mm-hmm. are trying to start their own thing, especially during, you know, quarantine or as, you, you know, I feel like a lot of cooks are realizing that they need to have, not need to, but a lot would like to have a brand or something associated with themselves outside of their regular job. So What's your advice for someone looking to create content and kind of make a name for themselves in in the media world? I think it's important to figure out why you're doing it and to do it for the right reasons. Do it because you want that creative outlet, because you have some different ideas you want to get out into the world that, um, you know, you have a desire to help other people or forge a community or just tell stories. So to think about what you want to do and to not be afraid to do it the way you want, I think it's very important to have a voice. 
Um, there's so much food writing and food media in general that feels like it's all the same, that it doesn't stand out. And it's important to, um, it's important to have a voice and to keep working at it and develop your voice. And, you know, that is a process. It doesn't, it doesn't always happen immediately, but, um, you know, just keep at it and keep doing it. You become a good writer from writing. Like there's no shortcut to it. You have to write a bunch of absolute crap and then you slowly start to get better. And, um, you know, if you are a writer, I can't recommend Annie Lamott's book that I just referenced bird by bird highly enough because, you know, she talks about things like the dump draft where you just like have something in your head and you want to put it down on paper and you may never go back to it. And it's okay because, there might be just a phrase that is the thing that will carry over to another draft and you just keep doing it and doing it. And I think that it's, um, I was listening to a podcast with Soledad O'Brien and she talked about the fact that television production and on-air work is a learnable craft. It is something that you can go back and you can study and you can say, okay, here's what I did and here's what someone else did. And I think that was better. And I want to look at why. So there's, um, so, but part of it is just, if you, if you're going to do it, do it and, you know, do it fully. All right. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. I hope people listening, you know, take that advice. Um, uh, you know, so the audience that listens to this podcast, I call them the line cook nation. Group, a group mm-hmm. of chefs, cooks, people interested in the food industry. Uh, and now that you've been on the show, obviously you being a part of that community of people, you know, just trying to connect and learn more about each other in the food world. What does it mean for you to kind of share with us, you know, about Plate Magazine and just kind of be a part of this community now of people that want to be more? I think, I mean, I love what you're doing. And I think that it's so important because. It's another way for uh, for all of us to connect with each other. And I feel like what you're doing is creating this community. And that's so important because no matter what you're doing, it can feel like very lonely work. It can feel like, okay, I don't, you know, I don't know what I'm doing or I don't have anyone I can talk to about this. And so I think it's it's really cool because we're all just learning from each other and we're all learning what it means to have, uh, you know, to, to learn from each other's experiences and life experiences and professional experiences and just the perspectives people have. So that's what I think is so important. It's so great about what you're doing. Thank you so much. That means a ton to hear. Um, okay. And yeah, I mean, I think the community is, you know, it's the biggest thing. It's the reason I do it. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I just love the connection of chefs and kind of sharing stories. So um, I'm sure that is also something you love, you know, being someone who is an editor for Plate Magazine. So, um, yeah, if you just wanted to share where people can find you on social media, uh, I think that would be the last thing to share. Sure. On the podcast. Um, I think that it's uh, it, um, Twitter and Instagram are the best ways to find me on social media. And my handle is at Chandra's Plate. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know you're busy and it meant a ton to have an hour to chat. Um, But yeah, thank you so much. Happy to do it. Thank you so much for having me on.
Yeah, of course. So there you have it, the interview with Chandra Ram. Thank you all so much for listening once again. I'm so excited for you know what's to come. We're about to hit episode 100. It means so much for all your support. And yeah, like I said, just stay safe, stay inspired, and we'll talk to you soon.